title of my message today is Build the House. Build the House. I get that phrase from Haggai chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can start turning to Haggai. It may take you a few minutes to find it. No shame if you have to use the table of contents, okay? Uh, pro tip, you can find Matthew and then just flip backwards a few pages and you'll, you'll find it pretty quickly. So we're going to be in the book of Haggai today. This message I had planned and prepared to preach Wednesday night of Jubilee. Uh, you may not have known that I was the original speaker at that point, but Pastor Jacob came to me and he said, listen, Austin, there's this guy, he's kind of an up and coming minister and he's really looking for opportunities to, to speak. And I, th- I think I want to give him a, a shot. I said, okay, cool. I, I love giving people opportunities. What's his name? He said, Andrew Womack. I was like, oh, great. Haven't heard of the guy, but I'm sure he's going to do a good job. Uh, if that's a joke, I mean, he is the Wednesday night speaker, but he also leads one of the larger ministries in the world. So he is definitely not the new guy in the block. I am. And we're come. Abby and I, uh, we've been in Sherman a little over a year and we're coming up on one year since we've been set in as campus pastors here. And yeah, yeah, I, I have pretty much finished my freshman year of campus pastoring. And I think I successfully kept off the freshman 15 in terms of weight. Um, but when it comes to, in terms of gray hairs, I have a lot more gray hairs this time this year than I did last year. I'm chalking that up as wisdom though. So yeah, uh, but it's in a lot of ways, it's been a really good year. Um, have really enjoyed getting to, to know you, connect with you, hear your stories, dedicate your children, baptize brothers and sisters. Only a few of you have cussed us out. So uh, that's pretty good for rookie numbers. So I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, but it's been really good. But to be able to say like the past year, to give a blanket statement, the past year has been a great year, uh, would be a mistake. Because unless you were born today, which there may have been some, I don't know, but unless you were just recently like coming to awareness, you know that the past 12 to 18 months have not been all great and good. We have had a lot of challenges, both locally, nationally. It has not been the greatest year by any regard. And it has brought its challenges, its loss. You're all aware of that and familiar with that. And so whenever I was coming into this role as campus pastor, one of the things that the Lord laid on my heart was, uh, was to bring stability. For one of the, the primary objectives from my role at that time was to try to bring as much stability as possible because everything around was so unstable. Like, Anything that could be shook, shaken, whatever, all, all my grammar people will fill me in later. Anything that could be shaken was being shaken in our, in our world. And so I felt like it was really important to try to bring as much stability as we could. And a few months ago, something that the Lord had laid on my heart was an indicator for me of a change of seasons where the focus is being shifted from stability to building. 
I feel like we are coming into a place where as a church, we're stable enough to build, okay? You don't want to build upon instability because that's how people get hurt, okay? So a couple months ago, first week of June, I was playing with, with some of my sons and just kind of seemingly out of the blue, which is one of the indicator, one of the indicators for me at least of when the Lord is talking to me, is it comes out of nowhere. And uh, part of what he said was, build my house. Build my house. And my first thought was, Lord, that is your job. That's your job. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And he said, yeah, I know. And guess who's helping me? You. How many of you know that the like general contractors or chief builders, they don't hammer in every screw, okay? They don't paint every wall. So when we talk about who's the builder of the church, there's one name, Jesus. But he has a crew and we're part of his crew. And in that word, I felt like what God was saying is it's time for us to start shifting our focus from stability to building. So I, I took that and I do what I typically do. And that is I, I reflect and I write. So the next day I went to a local coffee shop just to sit down and start reflecting on that, that word. And I ran into a couple from our congregation and I shared with them what, what the Lord had said to me. And I told them, you know, I think, I think in that word, the Lord is saying it's time to shift priorities and focuses or focus from stability to building. I think we're stable enough to build is what I told them. And she said, did Abby tell you what I texted her this morning? Abby's my wife. And I said, nope. And she goes, well, let me, let me show you. And so she shows me this text that she had sent my wife just that morning. And this text said, uh, said I agree, God is moving in our Sherman campus. So thankful for the leadership that we have. We feel so stable. I love it when the Lord brings confirmation because it makes you, it helps you know that you're not crazy, okay? So I think as a church, we're stable enough to start building. Now that doesn't mean that every individual in this room, their life right now, your life right now is stable, okay? Because I know, I know that that's not the case. But I also know this, I think this word is still for you. In fact, this word may be more for you than anyone else. If you're in a place where you feel like, man, my life is anything but stable right now. What I have to share for you today is for for everyone. So we're we're gonna be looking at the book of Haggai. Uh, And you may, if, if you're in one of those spots where you're like, my life is not the most stable, you may be in a rebuilding year right now. Um, have you ever been in a rebuilding year? Okay. Who is in a rebuilding year right now? Okay. How many of you know that sometimes a rebuilding year can turn into rebuilding years and sometimes rebuilding decades? Okay. Just ask the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, I know it's just too easy. I'm sorry. Okay. Trust me. My, I've been saying the same thing about the teams that I, I like to follow too. We've been in a rebuilding decade, but yeah, sometimes rebuilding year can turn into years, can turn into decade plus. 
And that's the setting and that's the context for the book of Haggai. That's what's happening with the people of God during this time. So there's some context I want to give you before we jump into looking at the scriptures. So what's happening is the book of Haggai is set in the year 520 BC, which I know means a lot to a lot of people. But what's important to know is that it is the story of the people of God trying to rebuild their lives, rebuild their houses, rebuild the temple after they have come back from the Babylonian exile, okay? So about 70 years before the book of Haggai was written, another nation called the Babylonian Empire came in and destroyed everything, okay? People's houses, people's livelihoods, the temple, everything was destroyed. I know that like whenever we we talk about these stories, it's easy to consider that just as a fictional story. But as we approach this text today, I want to encourage you, put yourself in their shoes. Imagine another another country coming in and ransacking everything. Your house is brought, it's leveled. The businesses are on fire, burned to the ground. The church, the temple, everything is just gone. They destroyed everything and they took what was valuable, gold and people that they considered or deemed to be valuable, they took as well. They left those who weren't worth the shipping costs. They left them in the land, but anyone who is worth something, they took. And so they're taking these people out of their homes, out of their homeland, and now they're bringing them into a foreign country. Okay, that lasted about 70 years. And now the Babylonians have been overtaken by the Persians and a Persian king named Cyrus releases the exiles back into their homeland. So he releases them And now this is where we pick up the story of Haggai. They have been released. They're coming back in to uh, to Jerusalem, Judah, and now they're trying to rebuild their lives. So you have these conditions that are present during this time, I think are really important to pay attention to. So you have this massive migration of people coming back. Um, So a lot of moving people, you have that. And then in addition to that, you also have, what we, from what we can tell in Haggai, you have the land has had several poor years in terms of their harvests. So you have, like the conditions here are you have this massive swell of demand because the more people are in an area, the greater the demand is for resources. While simultaneously, you have consecutive years of poor harvests amongst the fact that they're trying to rebuild out of ruins. So you have a great demand and a low supply, okay? So if you can recall back to your economics class, what happens whenever there is a high demand and a low supply? Yep, price starts to go up. And when you start to lose your purchasing power, what happens? Inflation. Have you heard of that word recently? Anyone? Okay, so I'm not going to say that, we, you know, the conditions that we're in today are the exact same, because they're not. Okay, imagine the year 2020, as bad as it was, imagine that for 70 consecutive years. Okay, yeah, 
And then, don't worry, we'll, uh, we'll have an altar call for you at the end because you probably all need to, to be delivered after that thought. Um, no, but, so I'm not, I'm not saying that we're in the exact same spot or we have the exact same conditions. But it is really interesting to see, I think it's really important for us to pay attention to what God says to his people in these conditions who are trying to rebuild society, rebuild their lives, rebuild their homes, rebuild their businesses, their livelihood, the temple after a major devastation, while at the same time you have this increasing demand, people are moving, and anytime people go into a new area, what happens? Tensions occur. Um, So tensions are happening. You have inflation happening. So what does God say to people in these conditions? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at this in two different categories. The first one is going to come from chapter one, and it's going to be five words of admonishment. Okay, probably not a term you use every day, but admonishment is a form of correction. If you remember Pastor Wayne in his series on immaturity, in one of his sessions, he talked about different levels of correction like a reprove or a rebuke. Well, an admonition is, uh, it's not as harsh as a rebuke, but is it, it is a form of correction. And so that's, what, uh, that's what's going on here. So we're going to look at five words of correction that the Lord brings. And then in chapter two, we're going to look at six words of encouragement that the Lord speaks. So let's jump into it. How are you guys doing? Good. Great. Awesome. All right. Five words of admonishment. The first one comes from verse two, chapter one. These people say it's not time to rebuild my house. These people. Okay. Whenever your child does something really awesome, what's your language like? Your language is like, let me tell you about my daughter who just graduated medical school. Or look at what my son did. Like he's two years old and it's just a bunch of scribbles on a page, but look at what my son did. He's the next Picasso. But when your kid takes a Sharpie all over the walls, the language changes to, can you believe what your son, your son just did? Or can you believe, you'll never believe the words that just came out of your daughter's mouth towards me. So right out of the gate, The Lord is saying, these people, okay? That is God's way of saying, like your kid, okay? This is not my people, this is these people. Right out of the gate, you can tell God is not super happy about what's going on right now. And he said, these people say it's not time to build my house. So what's happening here is whenever the exiles came back to Jerusalem, there was a lot of enthusiasm, They got to work. They started building back the temple and they laid the foundation. They dedicated the foundation. And once they did that, that was 16 years ago. Okay. So 16 years before Haggai was written was when they finished the temple or the foundation for the temple. And here we are still not built. And the Lord is saying, they're they're saying that it's, it's not time to, to build my house. And I mean, they, 
they came in with such like excitement and enthusiasm and they knew like, oh man, we got to get back. We're going to build this temple and it's going to be great. And they laid the foundation and then they stopped. Why? Well, maybe for some of the same reasons that we do. Maybe for some of the same reasons that we come into something enthusiastically with passion and we're like, man, we're going to do the right thing. Like we are going to build this marriage. We're going to build this house on God and you get into it. You have kids, stuff. You, you go from like, you know, those, you have those moments. I don't know if you did. I had these moments of like before you had children and you looked at people and you're like, tell you what, when we have kids, that's never going to happen. Yeah. yeah. And then you realize you're foolish. You're right there with them. Um, yeah, they, so often we have these great expectations and then somewhere along the way, we just lose steam. Maybe we get distracted. Maybe a competing priority comes up. I mean, they had their reasons and they were legitimate reasons. I mean, they're trying to rebuild their lives. They, I mean, they need houses. They need places to stay. When they lived in Babylon, one of the reasons that they're saying that it's not time could be they look at it and they say, well, God, you were with us in Babylon. That's what the prophets told us. You're with us there and we didn't have a temple. So maybe we don't even, maybe we don't even need a temple. It's funny how sometimes we can take uh, accommodations that the Lord makes for us and we use them as a justification for our behaviors. Yeah. So another reason could be, I mean, there is a limited amount of resources available at this time and they need houses too. So it could be, listen, God, and I know you've never said this. I've never said this. God, let me just do this real quick. And then I'll get to what you want me to do later. Okay? Could be what happened. Anyway, like regardless of how you look at it, they had their reasons, but God called them on it. Uh, You can fool a lot of people, but you can't fool God. Like you can give excuses to a lot of people, but God can see beyond that. And he knows like what's really going on. And he knows that the issue here is... Uh, is not what it appears at the surface. And he calls them on. So the second word, of admoni- second word of admonition that he says to them from verse four, he calls them on it and says, is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, my house, lies in ruins? Like your, your houses, I, I know scarcity of resources. I know you may be trying to misconstrue uh, the wisdom literature from Ecclesiastes saying that there's a time to build. You may be saying that it's just not time to build, but your houses are looking nice. Um, While my house lies in ruins. Third word that he says to him, consider your ways. This is the only word out of both the, the admonitions, the corrections and the encouragement. It's the only one that he says twice. Consider your ways. Take a good long look at your life. The reason why he said it twice is 
because oftentimes when somebody asks you a, a question that requires reflection, it's like, oh man, that's a great question. And then you totally forget about it. Uh, if you've done the Jubilee Journal, probably know what I'm talking about. I thought I did a decent job of reflecting until I read those questions and I'm like, I have not reflected on that at all this year. Take a good long look at your, I just spit everywhere. Did you see that? I'm not even preaching. Man, that's why no one's sitting in this row. It's the splash zone. (laughs) He's saying, you have been, you know, I get it. You're trying to, to rebuild things and you've been so busy, but stop for a minute. Slow down and take a good long look at your life. In the first service, I misspoke and I said, stop, collaborate and listen. And one of our congregants came up to me afterwards and was like, I went to school with vanilla ice. So anyway, if you want to, if, if you want an in with vanilla ice, we may have one. So if that means anything to you, um, but he's telling them you're, you're busy, you're overwhelmed, but slow down and reflect Take a, take a long look at your life. And the fourth word that he said to him correctively in chapter one, this is a longer one. This comes from verses six and nine. He said, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes that Sounds like inflation. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. You came in with all of these great expectations. You had this picture of what it would be like. Uh, Pastor Jacob talked about this recently, the difference between expectation and expectancy. You came in thinking it had like it was going to look this certain way and it didn't. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. God, that seems pretty harsh. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. God is not being petty here. And he's, he's not being petty about how he's upset that they built their houses before his. Okay, he sees what's really going on And what's really going on is they have misplaced priorities. They have prioritized their house, their will, their way over God's. Whenever I read this, I looked at it and I'm like, man, this has, this sounds like Matthew chapter six. Like it sounds like the the mirror, like the the anti-Matthew chapter six. And as I was meditating on it, it hit me that, Jesus references this in Matthew chapter six. So we're gonna read Haggai 1, 6 first, and then we're gonna look at Matthew chapter six. So from Haggai, he said, you eat, everyone say eat, but you never have enough. You drink, everyone say drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. You've gone out and you've tried to do things your way, and you've tried to seek all of these other things 
And what you found is that no matter how much you have, you're still not satisfied. You think that if you just get this, if you just have that, you'll, you'll be content. But you're not. Why? Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33 says, Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He knows what you need before you need it. He knows what you really need, not what you think you need. It's not that God is is ignorant to the fact that they need shelter. Okay, the problem isn't the fact that they have houses. The problem is that they have prioritized their house, their way over his. And he knows that when you do that, when you go your own way and you seek after those things on your own, you're gonna come up empty every time. That when you seek your will, your way, you're gonna be left wanting. It's not gonna satisfy He said, seek first, don't don't be anxious. I know that you need these things, but don't be anxious about it. Because who by worrying, sometimes we think that if we just worry enough, that it'll come. Like that that somehow meditating on worry will help. He said, don't be anxious, but instead seek first. A lot of times whenever we're overwhelmed, when we're overloaded, we forget first the kingdom of God instead of seeking first. Sometimes whenever our our schedule gets really full and really busy, the first thing, and we get overloaded or overwhelmed, the first thing that goes is the thing that we really need. And then we show up to church on Sunday and we're like, God, I don't know when the last time I talked to you was. I know I've been thinking about all these issues that I've had all week, but I I don't know the last time that I came to you. Do you seek first or do you forget first the kingdom of God? Sometimes I forget first. Sometimes I find myself just meditating on the issue instead of taking the issue to God. See, seeking first the the kingdom isn't like the, the first thing on your checklist. Like you pray in the morning and then you check it and you're done. It's throughout the day, every day, when you encounter your kids, when you encounter issues with raising your children or an issue at work, how do I work this out? It's in those moments, you don't try to figure things out your own way. Instead, you seek first the kingdom of God in all things. Seek first the kingdom. So the the fifth and last admonition that we're going to look at is from verse 8. He said, go up to the hills and bring wood. Um, Apparently, Haggai had been to Lowe's recently, and he knew that the only way you're affording to build this house is if you go and cut down the trees yourself. Um, No, I'm kidding. Uh, Bring the wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. 
Everyone say, build the house. Build the house. Build the house so that God may take pleasure in it and be glorified. I think before we head into the second group, I want to hit on the word glory because it's going to come up a lot. And maybe you have a good handle on what the word glory means and maybe you don't. So if you don't, this will be helpful. So the word glory, um, the Hebrew word that we use for glory, uh, the Hebrew word is kavod. And kavod literally means weighty or heavy, which may be kind of weird to think about uh, if you like recall to mind any scriptures that you know that use the word glory, uh, what does it mean by heavy? You know, like Moses in Exodus, when he says, God, show me your glory. What is he saying? Like, God, show me how heavy you are. Um, that can be kind of insulting depending on who you ask. Uh, like we, there are certain things you do and you don't ask people. You don't ask people how heavy they are. Okay. You don't ask people, particularly women, how old they are either. In case you didn't know this, you're learning in church today. Um, at least you take something out of this. But my, I have a six-year-old son who was talking to my parents, and uh, he calls him Pop and Gaga. And he asked my mom, he said, Gaga, how old are you? She goes, or he said, you know, Gaga, how old are you? And my dad said, Cohen, it's not polite to ask a woman her age. And he goes, okay. Papa, how old is Gaga? (laughs) Yeah. So what does it mean by, like, what does it mean for glory to to be heaviness? Well, we still kind of use this a little bit whenever you talk about, man, that, that moment was really heavy. What are you saying? There was something really significant. There, there had some, there was some gravity to that moment or some gravity to that situation. There was some substance to it, some weight to it. You know, they didn't have the concept of, of gravity at that time, but if you think about it, the, the more, now that we, we know how gravity works, the more mass or the more weight that something has, the stronger its gravitational pull is. Like the things, or something can be so weighty, so glorious, that the things, that which surrounds it, actually speaks to its, its, uh, its weightiness. Um, and, and glory is used to speak of someone's significance or their reputation or their honor. So sometimes someone can have so much honor that everything that surrounds them actually speaks to their significance. Okay, have you ever been in the presence of a really important person? Which is relative, like for, for some, that may be the boss at work. Uh, for others, it may be someone who has uh, a public position or whatever. But when you come into the presence of someone uh, really significant, even the things around, like, the things around them speak of their importance. You walk in and you, you can tell by the way that people talk about that person that that person carries a lot of weight. And you can just tell, like maybe it was their office, maybe it was their house. When you come to their house, you can tell like, just the arrangement of their house, this, this person's really important. And all of that can speak to their importance, but there's also a different weight that comes when the person actually steps into the room. Have you ever felt that before? Like when somebody comes into a room, you can actually feel the weightiness of their presence. Sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's not. 
So glory was used to speak of uh, God's weightiness and his act, the actual manifestation of his presence. So when Isaiah says in chapter, Isaiah chapter six, the earth is filled with God's glory. What he's saying is, it, look around at the earth and the earth is full of like signposts, things that are declaring how significant, how important God is. It's full of his glory. You look around, God is so significant that the whole earth speaks of his significance. But there's also a different weight that comes whenever the presence of the Lord actually manifests. Like in the dedication of the temple, the priest couldn't even stand up. It said that the glory filled the house and the glory was so tangible, so heavy that the priest couldn't even stand to minister. So it's important for us to to have a a grasp on glory as we approach these these parts in chapter two. So after chapter one, something crazy happens, okay? You're never gonna believe it. The people actually listened and did something about it. It, I know, I know it's crazy. Um, It's it's scriptural, so it's gotta be true. But it says that the, the Lord stirred up the spirit of the leaders, like he sparked enthusiasm and he stirred up the spirit of the leaders, the priest, Joshua, and the politician, Zerubbabel. So God stirred up the spirit of the priest and the politician. Glory, please. Like, yes, Lord, we receive that. We receive you stirring up your spirit in politicians today. Um, so he, he stirred up their spirit and transformation actually started taking place. So chapter two picks up about three weeks later and we're gonna jump into six words of encouragement. The first word, now remember, this is God encouraging people who are trying to rebuild their lives, rebuild the temple, um, like set in the context of all of these issues and these challenges of not having enough scarcity of resources, inflation, all of this. And this is what he encourages the people with. First thing is be strong and work. I think that, I think that um, encouragement applies to us today as well. Um, we, need to, we need to work. Why? Because work is part of our worship. We were made to create. We were made to work. And so working is, is part of how we image God in that. And he tells them, be strong. They came in from exile, really enthusiastic, but somewhere along the way, they lost steam. And he's encouraging them, be strong and get to work because the house isn't gonna build itself. The house isn't gonna build itself. Now, these people have history of being able to just walk around walls and they fall. But he said, in order for these walls to go up, you've got to get to work. You've got to do something. The way that I worked before is not going to be the same way that I work today. Previously, y'all were able to just walk around walls and they came down, but I need these walls to go up. So I need you to be strong and get to work. The house isn't going to build itself. In case you're not connecting the dot there, 
I'm not talking today about building a physical house. Okay? Talking about building the church. The church is not going to build itself. God is calling us to get to work, to be strong, get to work. All right. Second word of encouragement, he says, these may be the most powerful words in the whole story. From verses four and five, he says, I am with you and my spirit remains. So in the midst of their chaos, in the midst of their disappointment, God is telling them, I'm still here. I am with you. I am with you as covenant language. Introduced with Moses, whenever God revealed his name to Moses. So from that time, and in Haggai he says, I'm with you according to the covenant that I made with you in Egypt. A covenant relationship is I'm in this, I'm committed to this no matter what happens. That, that language, I am with you. We see it from Moses all the way to Jesus when at the, the great commission, when Jesus tells his disciples, go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And I am with you always, even until the end of the world, I'm with you. I hope if, if you're married, I hope you experience that with your spouse. If you're single, I hope you experience that with your, with your close friends and family, that, w- that covenant relationship. There's something unique about a covenant relationship that you know that no matter what happens, no matter what we go through, no matter how much we have or we don't have, no matter where we live, no matter what we live in or don't live in, I'm with you. There's a sense of like contentment that comes with that, that you know that no matter, no matter what life brings, I know that it's gonna be okay because I'm not in this alone. That I have, I have this person and that's enough. It's covenant language. The third thing, he says from verse five, fear not, fear not. This is like heaven's most consistent message to humans is don't be afraid. Why? Because, well, we're often afraid. There's plenty of reasons to be afraid. And he's saying, don't be afraid. Not because there's not things scary out there, but don't be afraid because I'm with you. I'm here. I'm still here. So fear not. And a lot of times when we're afraid, we just seek relief. Whether that's comfort and we try to mask our fear with different things and it's really just relief. Uh, The antidote to fear is not comfort. The antidote to fear is faith faith that God is with you. No matter what happens, he's with you and that's enough. Fourth encouragement from verses seven and eight. He said, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. What the Lord is doing is he's reminding them who he is. He's reminding them who they're talking to. 
okay? I am the Lord. So whatever you lack, whatever you don't have, everything is mine. I am the one who created it and who sustains it. You know, he, he told them, go up to the hills and get wood. Go do what you can do. Go do your part. Go do what's within your reach. But don't worry about the gold, okay? Because I'm, I'm the one who has all the gold and all the silver. Don't worry about what you don't have to start what I'm asking you to start. A lot of times we wait until we have everything we need before we take a step of faith. Okay, if you wait till you have everything you need, it's no longer a step of faith. Go do your part. Something that Pastor Jacob talked about, it was either last week or the week before. He talked about how we dig ditches, right? In, in prayer, in hope, we are digging ditches for when the rain comes, it has a, a channel to go through so that it, it feeds and, and gives life and water to the whole area as opposed to just being uh, destructive. He talked about digging ditches. I can dig a ditch. I can't make it rain. Okay? If you're waiting until everything happens before you take your step, then you're either never going to start, which is what happens a lot of times, or you're going to miss it. So what do you have, whatever you're believing God for, whatever he's promised to you that you haven't seen it fulfilled yet, what do you have? What is within your reach that you can go and you can start working on to take a step in that direction? Fifth thing. He said in verse nine, the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former. In chapter two, it starts out with Haggai, with the Lord asking this question, who among you remembers the glory of of the temple, what it was like before it was destroyed. And he's calling to mind for those who had seen it or for those who had heard stories about it, this image, this picture of what the temple looked like and how glorious it was. And he's asking, how many of you remember what that looks like? And now how does this compare? And the answer, not great, not great at all. Like whenever they dedicated the foundation of the temple, it says that there was this loud noise. And amongst this noise, it was mixed with people who remembered what the temple used to look like, who were shout, who they were weeping. And those who didn't know, they were shouting with joy. And so when they dedicated the, the foundation of the temple, there was just this loud noise, this mixture of people who were weeping and people who were shouting with joy. Because this doesn't compare to what it used to look like. And God is saying, to these people, he's calling to mind that image and that picture, and he makes this statement. He says, the glory of the house that is coming will be greater than the glory of the house that was. Why? Because my spirit's still here. My spirit's still here. See, what made the former temple so glorious, what set it apart, wasn't the glory of the house, it was the glory of what it housed. It wasn't all the gold, it wasn't the size. It was what it housed, it was what it held. And he's saying, what the thing that made it so glorious, my spirit is still here. 
And so the glory of the house that's coming will be greater than the glory of the house that was. And this didn't come to, to full, uh, this, this word didn't come into fulfillment until about 500 years later. When the word became flesh, the glory of the, only, of the only son of God, full of grace and truth, we beheld his glory and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God himself took on flesh and after he was crucified, died and was buried, when he was resurrected, he birthed the church and he filled the church with his glory that now no longer is the temple confined to these walls. But now the temple is us. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple? Because God's Holy Spirit, God's Spirit dwells on the inside of you. And so the thing that the people had been hoping for, the fulfillment of this word, that this house would be more glorious than the house that we've heard about from our parents, from our grandparents, the house of old, that this house would be more glorious than that was. This hope, this thing that they were hoping for finally comes to fulfillment. And Paul writes about it in Colossians. He said, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints, To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory is Christ in you. I believe that God is building his church and that he's still here. That even though everything that we went through the past 12, 18 months, I believe that the church will be more glorious on this side of COVID than it was on that side of COVID. Why? Because he's still here. Because he's still working. Because we are going from one degree of glory to another. We are continuing to be transformed into his image. How many of you remember great moves of God? How many of you remember houses filled with people? I mean, this building specifically, there was a period of time years ago where they would have to bring in chairs like to, to fill the hallways, they were stuffing people in every nook and cranny they could find because people were hungry for what God is doing. How many of you remember that? The glory of the church, the glory of the house that is coming will be greater than the glory of the house that was. And it's not because of all of our fancy marketing, slogans, whatever, because what made those moves what they were 
wasn't personalities. It wasn't schemes. It wasn't, strat- it wasn't all of anything that man could do. What made those moves mighty was God's spirit. And guess what? He's still here. He's still with us. Jesus is building his church. You know, look at the, how, and I don't blame them, but how small-minded the people of God were whenever they saw the, the foundation for the second temple, temple. And they're like, this doesn't compare at all. And it's, I don't know, a few thousand square feet difference. But look at what God has done. The foundation of God's temple is all over the world. Jesus said, upon this rock, upon the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, upon that rock, I'm building my church. That rock, that foundation is literally all over the world. People in every nation, every tribe, every tongue are hearing and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is building his church. And we get, to, we get a part to play in that. Everyone has a part to play in that. Paul picks up the metaphor and like he does with the body, like it's one body, different members, different functions. He takes the same thing and he applies it to the process of building. First Corinthians three says this. He said, for we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field. You're his building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one of you take care of how he builds on it. We all have a part to play. We have different, he said, according to the grace of God given to me, there is a different grace given to each person. Your grace may be the architect. Your grace may be the painter. Your grace may be the trim person. We all have a different grace given and we need it all. Like every, every gift matters. Every person matters. When the Lord laid this word on my heart a couple months ago, and as I've been meditating on it, I didn't realize that the day that I was going to be able to preach it to you was the same day that in Durant they're announcing a building project. Remember what I said about confirmation? God's doing something. And man, the, the words that we've received in this 10 days of prayer about the expansion of the house are exciting and I don't have time today to talk about it, so I'm just gonna throw the teaser out there. But man, it just, so much confirmation. Amen. And I wanted to share, and I wanted to let you know about Durant's building project for a few reasons. One, so that we can be uh, praying for them, encouraging them, supporting them as they uh, embark on this project. They're calling it Project Big. Because we're family, it's not their win at our expense. Their win is our win. We're, we're the same house. We love to celebrate what God is doing in other people. And another reason is, should words, whether at Jubilee or in weeks to come, come out about God building, I didn't want us to think that that was just limited to the, the Durant physical building project. But as words come about God building his house, that applies to us too. Because God is building his church. 
God is building his church. The person next to you, the person that you work with, the person that you live with, God is building and he's using us to do it. The last word of encouragement from verse nine. God said, in this place, I will give peace. In this place. Well, what did that place look like? That place, if you looked around, was still in ruins. Shambles. Things, places that they remember or have heard about. Their family going and enjoying are burnt to a crisp. It's ruins, it's rubbles, it's disappointment, it's devastation. And in the midst of that, God says, in this place, I will bring peace, shalom, wholeness, prosperity, completeness. In this place. So no matter what your life looks like right now, no matter how many disappointments, missed expectations, no matter what your family looks like right now, and you feel like it's just everything is crumbling around you, no matter what your country looks like right now, everything may be crumbling and you may be looking around and seeing things just going up in, in smoke. In this place, in that place, the Lord can bring peace. Because he's the one who can rebuild and who can restore anything. He's the one who can bring beauty out of ashes. He's the one who can restore ruins and devastation. He's the one who can redeem anything broken, shattered, shattered. 